This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Lovely to have your company. And this is Between the Lines. Well, remember when Australian pundits and the lobby groups for renewables, remember when they'd slam federal governments for not doing enough to fight climate change? Australia was a climate laggard, we were told. The Court of World Opinion constantly scrutinised our energy policies and condemned us. And indeed, some people still make that argument. But it also turns out that countries all across the globe are failing dramatically in making good on national commitments. That's the view of the United Nations. Now, as the world leaders gather for the next global climate summit, the UN has slammed the international community for failing to meet the 2015 Paris Deal's commitments. Now, its signatories, that is most of the world, they pledged to limit the rise in the Earth's temperature to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, preferably, though, to 1.5 degrees. Now, it's already warmed about 1.1 degrees. Now, you may remember the goal of last year's COP26 in Glasgow was to keep 1.5 alive. However, according to the UN Environment Program's Emissions Gap Report, the 1.5 degrees Celsius figure, that's all but out of reach. Indeed, there's currently, quote, no credible pathway to keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees. And all this at a time of a financial and debt global crisis, an energy price crisis, and a global food crisis. So is COP27 at Egypt doomed? Rupert Darwall is author of The Age of Global Warming, A History. He joins us from London. And Dorinda Cox is a Green Senator from Western Australia who will attend the COP27 at Egypt's Sham El Sheikh Beach Resort. I started by asking Dorinda, why is it that despite all the rich world's carbon emissions cuts and the trillions of dollars in renewable spending, the world has failed to meet its Paris commitments? Well, I think the simple answer to that is really that we need to stop uh, digging up um, coal, oil and gas um, in Australia and and globally. You know, we know the the message of the science that's been told to us in order to keep global warming uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, On top of that, we keep handing out public money. Um, We keep handing it over to billionaires and, and, you know, multinationals and corporates, hoping that they're going to save us from the climate crisis. And what we've seen is they're not doing that. Um, And we've tried very, very hard, particularly the Australian Greens, and I'm the the resources spokesperson for the Australian Greens, as well as trade, tourism and science. So I'm right across the spectrum of of the work. Um, But trying to, to legislate get the legislation at 75% to cut emissions was our target um, and getting net zero by 2035. But obviously, we've negotiated that with a new incoming Labor government and and only got that to 43% of um, emission reductions. What we have to do is really take some responsibility for our role that we play in creating the climate crisis. And we must fulfil our obligations in relation to that. We also have to make people pay their fair share. Um, I want us to go to COP27 um, in Australia with our heads held high as leaders, not as the climate deniers that we've been known for. Um, It's absolutely time for climate justice, um, both in Australia but also globally. 
Well, the UN report says that the pledges so far made at Paris and Glasgow have made negligible difference. Rupert, following on from Dorinda, I mean, if nations stepped up and did more, and this is the point that the US climate envoy John Kerry makes, wouldn't the world probably reach those 1.5 degrees Celsius target? So it's very important to remember that these targets are political targets. The 1.5 degree target is particularly demanding and when it was adopted in 2015, there was no way it was going to be met. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Actually, the Paris Agreement, um, as its aim, has the mm-hmm. aim of reaching net zero sometime in the second half of this century. And what then happened is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change brought that target forward to 2050. So that's kind of how, where, where we've ended up. But fundamentally, there was no chance ever that this target was going to be met. But however slow-moving and cumbersome the UN process is, Rupert, doesn't the UN system represent the best way to reduce global emissions? That would be the response of your critics. Well, it hasn't reduced global emissions, is, is, is the short answer. To give you an idea, in the 22 years uh, before 1992, when the UN Framework Climate, Con- on Cl- Climate Convention uh, was signed in Rio de Janeiro, global CO2 emissions rose by 50%. In the 22 years after 1992, they rose by 62%. So actually, the growth of emissions has accelerated uh, after the adoption of the of the Climate Framework, Framework Climate Convention. I think that the other thing to bear in mind is the only time global emissions have actually fallen were in 2020. And that wasn't anything to do with the UN or climate policy or anything like that. That was due to COVID and global lockdowns. So, and, and if you want an illustration of what's needed to, to, to get emissions down, you're talking about locking down the economy because that is the one way you, you can be sure that you'll get emissions down. Rupert says the growth of emissions have accelerated. Fair point, because one of the big themes at this COP27 is the ongoing question of how the OECD will compensate uh, the non-OECD countries led by China for its emissions reductions. Now, an agreement of an annual, I think it's $100 billion a year. That's a $100 billion fund. That agreement was reached at Copenhagen in 2009. But Dorinda, it hasn't translated into anything like that. Why is that the case, do you think? Australia is a wealthy colonial country and it has a responsibility to contribute its fair share, paying its reparation, um, you know, its role in reparations for its role in the climate crisis and the ongoing damage that, in fact, has actually been caused by Western imperialism. As a First Nations person, I can say that with great confidence. You know, we've seen the evidence come from a recent uh, UN Human Rights um, uh, Committee challenge from the Torres Strait Islands here in relation to the impact of climate change on their way of life, their way of culture, their way of living. And we in the Greens would support the reparations for particularly for the Global South in boosting that international aid through the official development assistance by providing $4.5 billion for climate finance and reparations, particularly to 2025. So we want to make sure that we are actually, um, with planning, compassionate and foresight, are actually tackling this as the greatest threat to humanity that we've ever faced and also Mm. embracing all of the new opportunities of energy uh, that have economic benefit, that's looking after people, particularly workers, and breathing life into our regional areas. 
Rupert, Dorinda mentions more government investment for the energy transition. Now, some might say that government budgets promoting that transition will be constrained by the, you know, the heavy burden of debt accumulated in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. But Rupert, to what extent can the private sector and the capital markets help the decarbonisation agenda? I think there's a there's a, a misconception here because uh, the hundred billion US dollars first put on the table by Hillary Clinton at the Copenhagen Climate Summit, and uh, it was a bribe, to, if you like, to the to the developing world to decarbonize a bribe that was actually turned down because they vetoed the carb- uh, a treaty at Copenhagen. But the point is that. You call it a subsidy. Actually, the hundred billion is made up of of any flows, so it includes private sector flows. The problem, the fundamental problem, is to get the third world not to carbonize, because that's essentially what we're talking about. I mean, Africa, for example, consumes a very very little of fossil fuel energy. In my opinion, far too little. As does India, by the way. But you have to give them outright subsidies, instead of which we're talking about lending them money. That is putting a huge amount of debt on their shoulders in order to take a suboptimal, an inferior course of development that won't yield as much benefit as as using fossil fuels. And the, the 100 billion is simply too little. I mean, you're talking about really to, to make good to the developing nations. You're talking about trillions, not billions. Truly, it's trillions. And it's not in debt that is theoretically repaid. It would have to be an outright subsidies. And to your point, Tom, the West simply doesn't have the financial resources to do that. There simply isn't enough money in the world. But if you speak to people in the capital markets, private equity folks are absolutely bullish about the prospects of wind and solar. Rupert? Yeah, but they're wanting a return. What I'm saying is because wind and solar are less efficient than uh, grid-powered coal and, and natural gas-powered grid-delivered del- electricity for, for the developing world, you are giving them something that is substandard. And the other thing, Tom, is we forget that we think about uh, fossil fuels being uh, used exclusively for energy. They are an absolutely vital input into the into the into cement production, fertilizer, 80% of the cost of fertilizer is natural gas. If you don't have fertilizer, you can't feed half the world's um, half the world's population. If you look at the humanitarian disaster that's in Sri Lanka. My guests are the London-based scholar Rupert Darwall and the Green Senator from WA, Dorinda Cox. Dorinda, um, what are the consequences of the Ukraine crisis for climate change? Because the overwhelming consensus appears to be that Europe's crisis is due primarily uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. But some, and I suspect Rupert is in this camp, they'd say that Europe's problems are more related to the continent's embrace of net zero emissions. Your position? Well, the first thing I would say is we are seeing the climate crisis, not just here in Australia, you know, but also throughout Europe and, you know, throughout and places like Pakistan and the Himalayan glaciers. And so it's not just in one patch or one place that we're seeing this. I think what it what the, the war in Ukraine um, and Russia has highlighted is obviously um, the geopolitical implications of our reliance on coal and gas and the fact that, that we shouldn't be siding with Russia or Saudi Arabia to keep open particularly coal and gas and, and increasing the demand for that. So we should be appropriately taxing fossil fuel companies and funding 
the equitable transition globally in order to make sure that we are putting that investment into cleaner, greener, renewable energy sources. And the need for that, again, as I say, global cooperation. So, you know, we need those developed nations and the OECD leaders to absolutely start providing their leadership in this space um, and, and actually making this transition quicker. I think we are lagging behind. We are using excuses to not do that. And following on from Dorinda Cox, Rupert Darwell, doesn't the Ukraine crisis, and you'll hear this from your critics, they'd say it boosts the need for Europe to end its dependency on imported gas to heat homes and power industries. Rupert. I think there are two points there. First of all, what we've left out of the equation, and we see it particularly in Britain, where I'm from, is the campaign to power past coal. And as a result, Britain uh, has closed down virtually all its coal-fired power stations, which means that we're far more dependent on imports of natural gas. The, The easiest way to stop power energy for a rainy day, as it were, is is by having piles of coal outside coal-fired power stations. Well, we have virtually no coal-fired power stations now, so we're very heavily dependent on tight supplies of natural gas. And no one is arguing that you can just power a modern economy with wind, weather-dependent wind, wind and solar. And this points up to a fundamental contradiction in the position of Greens. People who believe that climate change is catastrophic will say, well, the weather's going to become more extreme, it's going to become more unpredictable. And in the very next breath, they say, we must become more dependent on the weather to, de- to, to derive our energy. That position is completely illogical and irrational. Second point, uh, Tom, if you look at what's happened in Britain again, Again, um, there's a Boland Shale, the Boland Shale Formation across the north uh, of England. Quadrilla Resources, which is incidentally an Australian uh, company, reckons that 10% recovery of the Boland Shale would give the UK 50 years of production to meet its domestic needs. And that the, that 10% would be worth £3.3 trillion. Now, as a result of the anti-fossil fuel campaign and net zero and so forth, the UK government slapped a moratorium on that in 2019. So it just lies under the ground unused. So we, we rely more and more on imported natural gas. So this is the kind of destruction that we're seeing with the destruction of energy security and energy reliability with, we're seeing thanks to the Greens and net zero. Finally, China, its role here in the debate, it's so crucial if we're serious about decarbonising the global economy. Now, China emits more than two-thirds more carbon emissions than the Europeans and the Americans combined. It continues to build coal plants. There's no evidence to indicate that China's emissions will even come down before 2030. Even the Chinese recognise that. So, I mean, Dorinda, when you look at China and its emissions steadily escalating, how important is it and how do we encourage China? And remember, the strategic competition with China is escalating. How do we encourage China to play its role in decarbonising the economy? Well, we absolutely need to do that. Like, to, you know, China is a trading partner, particularly within our region, and we absolutely need to make sure that we are seizing those economic opportunities, but also talking about securing uh, energy and having energy security um, because there are opportunities for us to decarbonise in our region. 
but we've absolutely been negligent in having any of those conversations. So we do need to to ramp that up. We do need to um, continue to have some conversation around what are those technologies that we already know we have that are there to address climate change. Um, we just need the different political conversations to be happening and we absolutely needed to, need to be part of the next generation of acting for future generations. China has stopped talking with the US about climate change. Now, this was in protest to the US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this year. Rupert, will that non-cooperation between, and remember, we're talking about the world's two largest emitters, will that further hurt the UN campaign to slash emissions? Well, I have to say, I think John Kerry is completely deluded if he thinks that talking to China will get China to decarbonise. China is a coal-based economy. Furthermore, the Chinese Communist Party has the ambition to be the world's top power by the centenary of the uh, takeover of China by the Chinese Communist Party in 2049. And the idea that it's going to sacrifice that objective for vague uh, climate commitments is, is, is a fantasy. And I'd go further, that anyone who thinks they can trust the word of the, Ch of the Chinese Communist Party to do everything just has to look at what's happened to Hong Kong and how, they, how, the, how China has abrogated the, the two systems approach that was in the Anglo-Chinese Anglo uh, treaty on, on China. And the two systems which which President Xi has now torn up. So I think I think the basic thing is you just can't trust any any commitment made by the Chinese, and you can't trust them to do anything that's going to be against their uh, strategic and economic interests. Final question for Dorinda, just before she leaves for Egypt's uh, Sharm el Sheikh. Given the difficulties involved in trying to reach a legally binding, uh, genuine, global, and verifiable and enforceable deal. Uh, at Egypt uh, in the next fortnight. Here's the question I suppose that many of your sceptics might say, that is, instead of meeting these Paris commitments, which according to the latest UN environmental report appear out of reach, here's a question, why not focus instead on policies to adapt to a warmer world and mitigate any damage uh, if the worst happens? Absolutely. I think, you know, given that mitigation and adaptation are, are going to be covered as part of the, um, I suppose, negotiations, but also a uh, broader conversation uh, in events um, at COP27, um, I really hope that we see Australia signal and uh, sign up to a more equitable mitigation and um, adaptation strategies, not just for us here in Australia, but also across our region, particularly our Pacific neighbours who we have very close partnerships with, we have good conversations with, um, and, and we provide aid to. So, you know, COP27, we should be witnessing what I would think would be an enhanced global agenda, particularly for action on adaptation. But it also for me, confirming what we already agreed to in, in the Paris Agreement is also um, important and, and it's been further elaborated, particularly last year in Glasgow and in the Glasgow Pact. So with regards to just just placing it within adaptation, it, it should be at the forefront of that global action, but I also want to see mitigation as an important conversation. That was Dorinda Cox a Green Senator from WA who will attend the COP27 at Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh Beach Resort, and Rupert Darwell, author of The Age of Global Warming, A History. 
Up next, Nicholas Eberstadt on demography, the Great Resignation and North Korea. Well, Nicholas Eberstadt is one of the world's leading demographers and North Korea watchers. He holds a chair at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, and his latest book is called Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. Nick, welcome to the program. Tom, thank you so much. Now, demography, as you've written, does not dictate any nation's destiny, but for students of geopolitics, it certainly shapes every nation's trajectory. How do demographics offer a clue to the geopolitical world of the future? Well, it isn't destiny, Tom, but it slowly and quite unforgivingly alters the realm of the possible, not from one month to the next, but from one generation to the next. Uh, Already today, we have a very good idea of how many workers will be in the workforce uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now. We've got a good idea about how many retirees there will be. We can tell what sorts of trends are underway that may be supporting or conversely putting headwinds against a national economy. And we can tell something about the human capital formation, not just the head counts, but also the health and education trends. Well, let's put this in some broader context. I mean, the demographics certainly, as you've written, help explain America's extraordinary rise from the mid-19th century onwards. But, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results especially when we talk about China's spectacular rise in recent decades. Tell us about the negative trends now eating away at the foundations of U.S. power. At U.S. power, we have uh, we have a number of uh, a number of uh, phenomena in the United States that I refer to collectively as a sort of a new misery. That's a cloud that sort of descended on us. We've got big health problems even before the COVID calamity, slowing uh, slowing life expectancy improvement and even some retrogressions. Um, we've had a slowdown in improvements in educational attainment and sheer years of schooling in the United States. And we've had a uh, we have had a flight from work especially for men of prime working ages, the 25 to 54 group. You you can't count on utilizing human capital advantages if those advantages aren't becoming manifest. Okay, I'm going to address them very soon. But at the same time, China's economy faces heavy headwinds. Uh, Tell us about the, the demographic trends going against China. For 40 years, China had the most spectacular economic run, I think, in recorded economic history. Fastest long-term growth rates of the biggest population in the world. And a lot of that was supported by tailwinds, by demographic tailwinds in China. Uh, But we're past that. We're on the other side now, and China's demographic headwinds are growing. What are they? Uh, Decline of the headcount for the labor force very, very rapid population aging, graying on a relatively low income level, uh, a very strange imbalance between marriageable men and marriageable women in total numbers, uh, which is 
causing a sort of a bare branches phenomenon, and also uh, an atrophy of the Chinese family, which has always been the basic building block of their society and their economy. What about Russia? Uh, John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago is fond of describing Russia as just a giant gas station with a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. Russia, Nick? I like to say that in Russia's demographic story is good news, bad news story, except that there's no good news. <laughs> if, you take, if you take a look at the human capital side, it's really disastrous. It's not just the headcount decline. It's not just the population decline. Places like Japan and Germany can prosper with smaller, grayer populations. What we see in Russia is a health crisis and this strange situation where where Russia seems to have very high levels of education in terms of diplomas, but not a lot of human capital in terms of inventions, uh, patents, development of innovations for the economy as a whole. So these are disturbing trends for the two counter great powers to the United States, China and Russia. They're disturbing demographic trends here. Where does India fit in here? Because unlike China with its ageing society and everything you've just said about Russia, I mean, India has a very young population, right, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. India's population is very young and is growing, although it might be surprising to know that in the last few years, India's birth levels have fallen below replacement. India is now a sub-replacement uh, country. It's going to continue to grow substantially for a generation or more, but it's going to become a gray society as well. If health is the Achilles heel, the demographic Achilles heel for Russia, education may be for India. There are hundreds of millions of persons of working age in India who have never been to school. And India is probably about half a century behind China in the race to eliminate illiteracy. Yeah, that is very interesting. So all things considered, given everything you've said, in your judgment, Nick, you say that US is an enviable position which is quite striking given that you've just said to me that life expectancy has dropped for much of the past decade. You've got the poor progress in US public health indicators. That's been painfully slow. And then the improvements in educational attainment, they have they've basically stalled in the US in recent decades. Fertility rates have been falling. And yet you're upbeat about America. Well, it's it's a compared to what question, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Compared to what? Even after these... Um, pretty unpleasant trends that I'm describing to you in the United States. And as an American citizen, I take no pleasure in describing those to you. You have to say that on balance, there really isn't a close second to the United States at the moment. China isn't a close second at the moment. Uh, and the United States has an advantage that China does not have, which is a non-demographic one. This is that it is able to form an alliance system based upon democratic values with other willing economies, countries, peoples around the world. And when you put that alliance system together and you take a look at what that portends, it's really hard. It's really hard to come up with a competitor for that. Okay. Uh, We've had uh, guests on this program over the years, Nick. Uh, I think of Kishore Mabulbani from Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, Bob Carr, the former foreign minister and New South Wales premier, Jeff Raby, sure. our former ambassador to China. They'll say that... Um, 
artificial uh, intelligence will help China dramatically. They'll also say that, yes, there's been a collapse in fertility in, the, in, in China, but the end of the one-child uh, policy will help China. How would you respond to them? Something very strange has happened in China with the end of the one-child policy or the suspension of the policy. Uh, China's birth totals, if we believe the official numbers, have undergone a swan dive, despite the lifting, temporarily at least, of the, uh, of the strictures. China's birth totals between 2016 and 2021, as officially reported, have dropped by about 40%. A 40% drop in annual birth totals in a five or six year period is what you would expect to see of a society in wartime or in terrible disruption or in a plague or some other sort of catastrophe. It's not what you usually see in a society that's undergoing orderly progress. My guest is the distinguished American demographer, Nicholas Eberstadt. His latest book is called Men Without Work. This is the post-pandemic edition. Nick, you mentioned the extraordinary flight from work earlier. That's underway in post-COVID America. We have a situation here, and you've written a lot about this in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. We have a situation here where employers uh, are practically begging for workers while vast numbers of grown men and women. They sit on the sidelines of the economy. What accounts for this unprecedented peacetime labour shortage? It is in the wake of a catastrophe with the uh, COVID calamity in the United States, but it's not due to subtraction of humans from this mass death experience. Most of the people who perished from COVID were quite old, older than working ages. And it isn't due to people who are sick with long COVID. Uh, there is some of that accounting for withdrawals from the labor force, but it's not the, it's not the big part of the story. Uh, We've had a 4 million person increase in job openings, in unfilled jobs, and about a 4 million person shortfall in pre-COVID manpower trends. Wow. An awful lot of that has been due to withdrawals from the labor force, I think as a consequence of unintended consequence of COVID emergency rescue policies, economic and financial. You write in the American context, Nick, quote, Never has work been so readily available in modern America. Never have so many been uninterested in taking that work. Great quote, but to what extent is this a global dilemma? Surely it's not just confined to the United States. Well, of course, you know it. You know it here in Australia. Mm -hmm. it's a labor shortage here. You've also really? had this retreat from the workforce by prime age men in Australia, not as extreme as in the United States, but you're familiar with this as well. Um, to some degree, this is worldwide. To some degree, this has to do with uh, so consequences of supply chain issues uh, with the uh, over uh, overshoot of some of the rescue policies by different governments as well. But I think in the United States, it's probably more acute than in other places at the moment. My guest is Nicholas Eberstadt from AEI in Washington. Now, finally, Nick, let's talk about North Korea. You are one of America's most seasoned observers of the Kim dynasty. What do you make of Pyongyang's, I mean, there have been many missile and rocket tests throughout this year. They've been close to something like 30 weapons tests this year mm -hmm. alone. These are the ones that involve cruise or ballistic missiles. 
In your assessment, what's Kim Jong-un up to? He's trying to test weaponry to make sure that it works because he wants to have a nuclear arsenal and a uh, and a set of uh, shorter and long-range missile platforms to deliver these weapons on so as to threaten the United States to break the U.S.-South Korean military alliance, to push the U.S. out of the Korean peninsula, and if it comes to that, to win against the South in an unconditional war of unification. Yeah, the conventional wisdom says that these tests show that Kim and his regime, they're just trying to get our attention or that it's just shoring up uh, the regime's domestic legitimacy. How would you respond to them? It's an awfully expensive way to uh, get our attention. We, you know, we still do have the internet and you know, telephones. And as for shoring up uh, legitimacy, Maybe it's maybe it's possible that this uh, that this helps the pride of the regime, the propaganda of the regime. But I think that it might help them a little bit more if they could have economic results for their population. Your, so your critics, um, and I just mentioned John Mearsheimer earlier, prominent realist from the University of Chicago. If he were here now, Nick, he'd say, "Well, surely Kim's primary goal is just survival," and uh, he calculates. Kim calculates. This is the Mearsheimer argument that the end of his mm-hmm. regime means the end of Kim. So, from his perspective, Kim's perspective, it makes plenty of sense to develop nuclear weapons because nukes are the ultimate deterrent. Again, how would you respond to that realist criticism? Every regime tries to ensure its own, own survival. So, that's clear all around the world. What's strange about North Korea is what it seems to uh, need to make Kim Jong-un feel safe. Um, The regime is threatened by the market economy internationally. That's why they talk about the market economy being ideological and cultural infiltration and poison. They feel threatened by the existence of a successful uh, alternative Korean state on their peninsula. Uh, And certainly they're threatened by the U.S. protection of this successful alternative state. To make Kim Jong-un feel safe, he needs a world in which there is no United States presence in Asia and in which there is no alternative state on the peninsula. But North Korea... Let's be frank, it's a minor power surrounded by three major powers. You've got China, Japan, Russia, and you mentioned the United States. They're an outside power, and sometimes Washington threatens North Korea with regime change. So from Kim's perspective, when Washington helps topple Saddam's Iraq or Colonel Gaddafi's Libya, doesn't that just give Pyongyang a very powerful incentive to keep its nuclear weapons? I think it's overdetermined. Uh, North Korea's regime, North Korea's leadership can always find a good reason to continue with its nuclear program. Because if one reads the North Korean documents, if one reads the North Korean press, the, uh, the statements of three generations of Kims, they talk about being the leaders of a movement for the national destiny of the Korean race, to unify the Korean race against the outside hostile forces. At this point, given the 
poor performance of the North Korean regime in economics and in, uh, international culture. There's no cake pop there. In everything else, nuclear weapons are about their last card for trying to play this. You see, Donald Trump would disagree. Now, he believed that if there is any hope of discouraging Pyongyang from using nuclear weapons, then the Americans would need to stop threatening regime change and try to reach an accommodation with the hermit kingdom. Now, of course, Trump is a minority voice uh, on these issues in the in the policy debates, but he was president and he did try to reach an accommodation with the Kim regime. So how would you respond to that argument by the likes of Donald Trump? Donald Trump tried something that no American president had tried before. He is a most unconventional president and he had a very unconventional policy. And he got Kim Jong-un to the table to discuss the possibility of North Korean denuclearization. Uh, when the Kim regime found out that Trump and company were serious about actually getting a, a statement from them on where their nuclear facilities were located, it was a deal breaker. Nick, great to chat with you on the program. Great fun for me, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. That was Nicholas Eberstadt from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. He's the author of Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. Up next, Nick's wife, Mary Eberstadt, on identity politics. Well, what caused the rise of identity politics? Where did it come from and what's been the impact? And how have the changes to family and belief structures changed the way we view the world, ourselves and each other? Well, they're big, pressing questions. And for answers, let's turn to a leading thinker, an author and writer, Mary Eberstadt. Mary holds the Penula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Centre in Washington, D.C. She's a Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute, and she's been in Australia as a guest of the Australian Catholic University. Mary, g'day. What brings you to Australia? Thanks, Tom. Great to talk to you. Well, beginning several years ago, some excellent folks at the Australian Catholic University and the P.M. Glynn Institute got in touch. They were interested in some of my work on secularization and identity politics. And thanks to COVID, the trip took several years to work out, but here I am and couldn't be happier about it. How is the message resonating? Very well, I think, because for the bad reason that in the years since we started planning this trip, the trends that I've been describing of atomization among young people and trouble on campus uh, and disconnection generally have been getting stronger. And so I think the work is resonating because people are seeing more of this in their own lives. Yes. Well, the question, who am I? I mean, it's been asked for generations, but has the answer become a lot more complicated today? Oh, I think so. Now, in a sense, uh, victimization and identitarian groups have been around for decades. They were around when I was on campus uh, several decades ago now. But I think they have more gravitational pull than ever before because that question, who am I, used to be easily answered in a world where families were strong and communities, including religious communities, were strong. 
Today, we can't assume any of those uh, background facts about any given individual. And so the less gravitational pull these conventional centers of identity have become, the more frantic has become the search for a substitute. And that, I think, is what we're seeing in identity politics, especially on campus and especially among the young. They are looking for figurative families in a time when literal families are in disarray. Yes, well, identity politics has had a significant impact across university campuses here in Australia. But how would you describe student life on American campuses these days? I mean, how's the experience and the politics, how's that different since, say, you were at college and university in the early to mid-1980s? What's changed? There's a level of irrationalism that didn't used to exist. And we see this occasionally when speakers are brought to campuses and students respond if they feel threatened in any way by duct taping their mouths shut, by pounding on doors and sometimes assailing invited guests in response to arguments that, quote, trigger them, in response to arguments that allegedly or really make them feel threatened. Well, hang on, call me old-fashioned, but isn't the whole point of a university education to have a liberal education where you look at all the different schools and thoughts and you weigh up the pros and cons? That's the idea, but that's not what's happening uh, under the aegis of the humanities, especially these days. So I think we're seeing something new out there, and I think it's coming from the fact that people's sense of identity is now so fragile that when they tell us they feel threatened by ideas or threatened by the wrong pronoun, we should take that seriously. And it tells us that we are in trouble as a civilization if this is the kind of thing that makes people lose it. That's what's happening on campus. Yeah, well, this brings me to your thesis. This was in 2019, Primal Screams. Tell us how the, the rise of identity politics, how is that linked to the sexual revolution of the 1960s? Well, after the sexual revolution takes hold, a number of phenomena suddenly accelerate. There's a rise in fatherlessness, broken homes, divorce, cohabitation, all of which splinters the family unit. And so increasingly, people are coming from these places where basic bonds of kin are really attenuated and and fragile. And so increasingly, I think, People are looking for things to attach to because they don't have those primordial loyalties. And so they're looking to take them somewhere else. The same is true of religious trends and what the sexual revolution did to them. The splintering of the family also weakens the churches. And so we have a lot of unchurched young people who know very little about Christianity, but Quite beyond that, they've also been deprived of the kinds of bonds, the communal bonds that religion confers. And so they don't have fellowship that way either. So you have more and more people launched into the world looking for something to attach to because the ordinary ways of attaching have been taken from them or weakened for them. Do your critics misunderstand your position and assume, I mean, because the sexual revolution has been with us now for some 60 years, do they, your critics, do they say that you just want to turn back the clock and live like it was in the 1950s all over again? Yeah, of course. But I would draw attention to that phrase, turning back the clock. There are a lot of phrases like that. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't go back to a golden age. 
we have a proliferation of terms like this in ordinary language. And they tell us, Tom, that people are protesting too much. That's what I learned from that language. People are fearful of the idea that anything about the sexual revolution might be subject to scrutiny or might be subject to rollback. There's a lot of denial out there for a lot of obvious reasons. But at this point, these things that were supposed to be acts between consenting adults only or private matters only have spilled into the streets of America and across the West. They are responsible for a lot of the trouble we're seeing out there with young people, especially uh, trouble of psychiatric nature, uh, failure to launch, failure to attach. So I think it's past time that we have to talk about these things because we are in self-governing societies where we need people who are functional and can use their reason um, as citizens. So we, we need to remedy some of what's wrong out there. Yes, many conservatives in the Western world clearly uh, rail against identity politics. They say it divides people into different groups, religion, ethnicity, gender, and so on and so forth. And this just further coarsens the public debate. But let me push back and say, you know, humans are social beings. Groups have been central to the way we organize and live and evolve. So... Mary, isn't the rise of identity policy just another form of group behavior and identification? No, it isn't. It's on a collision course with the way we govern ourselves. Identity politics says that the most important thing about an individual is their victimhood. And right there, we have a denial of the idea that we are here to work together, to compromise, to muddle along and reach some kind of social consensus. In a world in which everyone is divided into oppressors or oppressed, there is no redemption. There is no common cause. And that's the problem with identity politics. It is destructive of the democratic project itself. This is Tom Switzer. You're on our ends between the lines. And my guest is Mary Eberstadt from Washington. Her most recent book is called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. Mary, when we talk about identity politics, let's talk about the founding document. I was struck when I read this. I I was not aware that it goes back to 1977 with a a collective of African-American feminists. They put out a statement. Why was that so significant? Tell us more. Well, first of all, Tom, I think the year itself is suggestive. 1977 uh, is just as the first generation born into the sexual revolution is coming of age. So we have here an inflection point. The document says that the people who signed it are giving up. They are giving up on the men in their lives. They are giving up on fellow women who are not the same color as they are. They are giving up on the traditional family. They're giving up a lot. And so the founding document of identity politics is one long, sad uh, howl for a world that's been lost. And I think that tells us a lot. Behind these kinds of street theater that we see on campuses and in the streets, there is this sense of loss, this palpable sense that the world these people are living in is not what it should be. And I think they're right about that. So unlike some people who see an identity politics, something to caricature, it is easily caricatured, I see something else. I see people who are disconnected in a radical way from their fellow 
members of society, from their families. And the beginning of this, uh, we can locate in that document from 1977. It's a straight line from that document to Black Lives Matter and its manifesto, which also gives up on the nuclear family, gives up on the idea of working in tandem with people who disagree. You also talk about the great scattering. What's that? How's that changed society, Mary? I should say at first that no one intended for things to work out this way. At the beginning of the sexual revolution, there were a lot of rosy forecasts about how this would make things better. This would give women control of their fertility. This would strengthen marriages. This would make abortion less likely. Now we know that none of that was true. Instead, we have a much more fragmented world in which people have been subtracted from the lives of other people. What do I mean by that? I mean, 60 years ago, your odds of growing up with your father in the home were pretty good. Today in the United States, they're somewhere over 50%. 60 years ago, the idea of having lots of cousins and uncles and aunts and extended family uh, was something that most people could approach because it's what most people had. But today, there are lots of only children without cousins, without uncles, without a robust family network that could help in all kinds of ways. So when I talk about the great scattering, I'm not talking about anything anyone intended. I'm just talking about the fact that the sexual revolution catapulted individuals away from other individuals in all kinds of ways. And that's, I think, the fundamental seismic shift of our time. Yes, but social learning doesn't just happen in the family. I mean, you've made this clear too, that churches and religious groups, I mean, (laughs) they were once pivotal in that process. Um, Have we seen a shift away from those institutions to a, say, a post-Christian society, Mary? Well, insofar as over a quarter of the young adults in the United States are none of the above, yes, of course, we're seeing that. They aren't finding community in church. If they've grown up uh, in elite secular institutions like private schools, secular universities, they've been taught to despise the church. And that's really sad, Tom, because the church offers people all kinds of opportunities for common cause and fellowship. First of all, it situates, situates people. Uh, theologically, in a cosmos where there is a God and there is community of all kinds and uh, figurative brothers and sisters within the church and all the rest of it. So I think part of what we need to understand about the situation with identity politics is that the answers that would solve some of the misery that these people are feeling have been taken off the table. They have been taught that the nuclear family is just one option. The extended family, many of them can barely imagine. They've been taught that organized religion is somehow deleterious to human functioning. And therefore, the kinds of things that would ameliorate their situation are exactly the kinds of things that they have been taught to hold in low regard. And that is a problem. Well, finally, how do we address these broader problems? I mean, you've described uh, they're largely cultural, they're social. So does the solution, therefore, need to come from people and communities rather than the state or government policy? So first, we have to start with the right diagnosis, which is what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to connect the dots between 
their suffering, which is authentic, and where it's really coming from, then we can look at all kinds of grassroots measures. Uh, the, the churches might reinvigorate themselves by strengthening young families in particular, and by bringing to parish life a new energy in light of this kind of understanding that the problem out there is that people are not in community. I think there's plenty that the churches could do. There's also a role for government, obviously, because if this diagnosis is correct, then one important thing to do to, to make things better is to strengthen the family. That sounds abstract and hackneyed, but it is not. Family formation is under attack, and young people are finding it hard to get together and stay together, let alone to have children together. So economic and other incentives that are designed to help with that uh, certainly have a place going forward. So there's work for everybody. Mary, lovely to have you on ABC Radio. Thanks so much, Tom. I really enjoyed it. That's Mary Eberstadt. She's the author of Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And she's been in Australia as a guest of the Australian Catholic University and the PM Glynn Institute. Well, that's it for the show. And just a reminder that if you'd want to listen back to this program or to previous ones, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.